Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. And now, here's our lead minister, Bobby Wallace. We are continuing our series, Messiah, the Gospel According to Mark. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. Um, I will tell you, most of the time, all, pretty much all the scriptures, except for maybe a couple sometimes, are going to be up on the screen. But today's a little different. This sermon is just, I mean, chock full of scripture. Okay, and so not everyone will be on the screen for you, so if you have your Bible, you may want to get that open and ready. If you're on your phone, you may want to be ready to do some quick scrolling, or if you just want to take notes and write down the scripture references and check me later, because I always want people to do that. This church is based on God's Word and God's Word alone. That's what we want to be. If we are not based on, the, on God's Word, I don't believe we're really the church, are we? And so we want to be based on the truth of God's Word, and what we say, we want to be from the truth of God's Word. And so I, say, I tell everybody all the time, very regularly, don't just take what people say for granted and just take it, you know, at face value. Make sure it's in Scripture, no matter who it is. I'll say that about myself as well. Check what I say according to Scripture, and if you see something that's different, let's talk about it, and let's study together, and whoever, where we need to come together, we'll come together on God's Word. So anyway, we're looking at Mark chapter 9, and I want to ask you, though, before we get too far into it, um, have you ever had an experience in your life where you misjudged someone or something's power? You know, you didn't realize how strong somebody was, or maybe you just didn't know what kind of person or personality type they had, or maybe it was some, you know, physical thing that you just didn't realize it. Uh, You know, my son Josiah, for his birthday present, his birthday was a couple weeks ago, one of his birthday presents was a horseback riding lesson. He's getting ready to do a second one. He did the first one just a couple of days ago, and one of the times I rode a horse, uh, the only time, the only time. It was mostly mule, I would have to guess. It was like the most stubborn thing. I don't think we should try to tame something that thinks it's smarter than we are. And that's what a horse does. It thinks it's smarter than you. And that thing tried to take me in the ditch. It tried to kill me. Horses are out to destroy the human race. I'm just laying it out there. You can do with that what you will. But he enjoyed it. He, he had a good experience. He had a really good instructor. Um, but, you know, you don't always understand the power of a horse, right? Well, one time in particular, uh, several years ago, my dad is a big, big NASCAR fan. And uh, for Father's Day several years ago, gosh, probably 10, 12, 15 years ago, I don't know, we said, we're going to take him on that Richard Petty driving experience where they take you out to a big racetrack, they uh, give you a little lesson, they put you in a car, and you can literally drive a race car around the track. The way it works is they have a lead car, and then they have two what they call rookies behind them. And you, uh, you do 10 laps, so one lap is a warm-up, eight laps of going as fast as you can go, and then another lap to cool down. And so my dad gets out there, he, by the luck of the draw, he's in third place behind the other rookie, and that person just freaked out, got scared. And so they barely got over 100, which, you know, for most of you, that might seem kind of extreme, but when you're on Charlotte Motor Speedway, and I think it's like a mile, mile and a half track, this big, massive track, these cars do almost 200 miles an hour around there normally. So my dad, uh, he was just chomping at the bit. Thankfully, they saw that, you know, he was being held back by the person in front, and so once they got done with that person's turn they pulled that person off and then my dad got to go back around again and he averaged like 140 some miles an hour and he was just loving it well he gets done and he tells me they had this opportunity you could pay a little money 
and you could ride along with a driver. They actually put a passenger seat in one of those NASCAR cars, and you can ride along for you know, a much cheaper price than doing what my dad did. And he said, you need to do it. And I was like, Dad, you know, I, I'm sure it would be cool, but you know, it's, it's a lot of money. It's just, you know, this is your day. He said, no, you need to do it. This might be a once-in-a-lifetime. So he, you know, he paid for me, pays the money. I get in the car, and I watch my dad, right? I watch my dad. They, they, they cruise out, and then they get going faster and faster. So that's what I'm thinking is going to happen with me. Well, we're sitting on pit road. I climb in the car. I've got the helmet on, strap in, and I keep, uh, this guy's like, you ready? And I was like, yeah, I'm ready. And so I'm like, you just relaxed. That guy goes, Whoa! I mean, like, it looked like back to the future. There were flames in the tire marks. I mean, he goes, and here's what it is. I don't know if you know much about racing. I'm not a huge race fan. But when we left Pit Road, we go, and the first thing you do is you come right into turn one. And, and so it's like you're literally like at, this, you're at the wall, and you just, he just goes, Whoa! And so you think you're going to go head on into the wall. And so that's, I was like, why do they give you the pins? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I kind of wish they had. So we go out, and... I'm, okay, this is another thing. They, they call this thing the groove, and there's like this high spot on the track where you're close to the wall, and that's one of the fastest places on the track. And so we get in the groove. Now, for the driver, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's been there. He's done that a lot of times. But I'm sitting there about what feels like about six inches from the wall. We were doing 176 miles an hour. 176 miles an hour. I felt like my face was on fire. I mean, but it was the coolest thing ever. I loved every minute of it. But I completely, completely misjudged the power of those cars. I completely misjudged what it was like to be flying in an oval, an oval, turning left at 176 miles per hour. And I say all that to say it's easy to misjudge something's power sometimes. In particular, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever misjudged the power of sin? Have you ever misjudged the power of sin? Um, I would say, yeah, you probably have. Because many of us, how we get caught up in sin, especially once we learn or once we know a little bit better, how we get caught up in sin is we just don't realize just how powerful it is. And we don't realize just how much it takes when you give it a little bit. You know the old saying, give it an inch and it will take a mile? Sin absolutely does that. And it goes even further. And many of us will misjudge the power of sin. And what we do, though, is we soften sin's blow by changing what we call it. We call it habits. We call it mistakes. We call it lifestyles. We call it choices. You know, there's any number of things that we'll call sin because we really don't understand the power of sin a lot of times. And so we call it different things, thinking it'll soften the blow, thinking that we can handle it, thinking that, you know, I can play with it, I can flirt with it, I can, if anybody can handle this particular sin that I struggle with, it's me, right? It's me. I've got control of it, and I will not let it get the best of me. Sin is those things. Sin is habits. It is, you know, lifestyle. It is choices. It is mistakes. It is all those things, but it's a lot more than just that. And, and we're missing a, a, a valuable lesson for us when we don't realize just what sin is. Sin kills. Sin separates. Sin degrades. It robs. It abuses. It cheats. It lies. It steals from you and the people around you. Sin is deadly. There's a particular time 
that Jesus taught uh, about sin. And he segued into that teaching in a kind of funny, interesting way. Uh, the disciples had been arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom and who, you know, who was going to be the one, who was going to be the big cheese next to Jesus, who was going to get a little extra power, and they were arguing about who was a little bit better than the others. And all of a sudden, they get to this place, and he asked them what that they were uh, talking about to themselves, but he knew. You know, he knew. He always knows. And so he says, what were you guys talking about? They're like, uh, uh nothing. You know, and I mean, they're just trying to act like nothing. And then he says, oh, look, here's a little kid that's nearby. He says, come on. He gets them, the disciples, the 12 in the circle, and he brings this little child in. He sits them there amongst them, and he starts to teach them about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And he says, the one that's like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom. And I think it's quite interesting. I, I don't know about you guys, but I think it's extremely interesting that as he transitions into teaching about sin, he uses as a bridge the idea of self-importance spiritually and the idea of pride and arrogance. And, and I wonder why. <laughs> Very tongue-in-cheek there, right? Because spiritual self-importance, arrogance, and pride is absolutely some of the greatest sins that we can struggle with. But the longer that we are part of you know, religious culture or the longer we're part of the church, we forget that those sins are just as deadly as some of the sins that we like to point fingers at and throw stones at. Am I right? You know, Jesus, he got the angriest with people who were supposed to be religious followers of God who also thought they were better than everybody else. That's who he got the angriest at. That's what, he was heartbroken over the people who, who got caught up in sin and did all sorts of horrible things to others and themselves, and he had patience with them. But the ones who should have known better, the ones who thought that they had it all figured out, he got the angriest at them. And so he makes this transition to teach about sin. Look at verse 43, or excuse me, 42 of Mark chapter 9. And I want to challenge you to look at something in this uh, verse right here. I, I think he sort of has a double... Um, entendre, if you will. If he's got a double meaning here as he teaches. See if you catch it. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. All right? So a few things we want to point out here. All right, so he brought the child in among them, right? And he just like sort of seamlessly transitions from talking about who's the greatest to talking about sin. He says, he's got this little kid. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better if they had a big millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. But I believe, now you can argue with me, a lot of scholars agree with this idea, but I believe, if, if I could just guess, if I could just guess, this is opinion, this is opinion, everybody, everybody say this is opinion. Okay. I would not be shocked if Jesus, as he was teaching, as he might have had his arm around this little child, if he said, if you cause one of these little ones, I would not be shocked if Jesus had have said and just sort of pointed around the circle. If you cause one of these little ones, one of these kids, and also one of the believers that follow after me to sin, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck. Now, I'm not saying it's got to be that, but there's other reasons that we can, we can get in there. And that's not the point of the sermon, but I just want you to, to think about that for a second. It's not just about making little kids stumble into sin. It's about making other people stumble into sin. And he uses this phrase, and for us it's kind of weird, you know, a millstone. We don't even have a clue, most of us, what a millstone is. You know, I mean, we've seen 
seen it in history books, maybe if you've been on a tour of some historical location, you know, you might think of a little grinding stone or something like that. Well, the actual word in the Greek here was the kind of stone that was turned by a donkey. It was a massive stone. And he said, if you cause somebody, a child, or maybe I would say anybody else to sin, he said it would be better for you to have a giant millstone hung around your neck and, thrown, and you thrown into the depths of the sea. What's it going to do? It's not a flotation device, is it? It's going to drag you down to the bottom. What is his point? Whether he be literal about that or figurative, what is his point? Sin is dangerous. Sin is deadly. Avoid it. Don't cause other people to sin. Now look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, you know, we, we could sit here and we could spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what Jesus was talking about here. I believe that he is he's exaggerating a little bit, but just there again, the same as with the millstone, the same thing with cutting off. He doesn't want you to sin yourself either. And what he wants us to do is get drastic about our sin and our sin problem and do whatever we can to stop sinning. And you know, this word Gehenna that is used in the Greek, it was literally a pit outside of the city where human refuse was thrown and all kinds of garbage and it was continually on fire and it was this hot, dirty, nasty place and there were worms crawling in and out of the decomposing stuff that was there and it was just a disgusting place and he compares where we'll spend eternity if we choose to reject him does it sound like a place that you want a vacation <laughs> no but a lot of times we play and live our life like that it's like well I'm gonna spend a little time in the church but then I want to go play and do what I want to do he's saying avoid it don't sin cut off your hands if you have to cut off your feet if you have to pluck out your eyes if you have to stop sinning at all costs this is your encouraging message for the day <laughs> But I think Jesus is pleading with us. In a few short verses, he drives this truth home. Sin is dangerous and the consequences are deadly, church. Sin is dangerous and it's deadly. And he gives two strong warnings. Don't cause others to sin. We already talked about that. And protect yourself from sin at all costs. Now, a lot of us, if you've been at church a little bit, you probably know that. Most of us probably know it. You know, we don't want to do things that hurt ourselves and hurt other people, at least in theory. And even if we've been in church for a long time, we know the right answers, don't we? But it's a whole other thing to give up the sin that we struggle with. Am I right? I am right. I hate to say it. I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I'm right. You might not struggle with the same sins that you used to struggle with. It might not be, you know, woohoo, potty potty. It might not be that. 
But it might be judging, it might be lust, it might be lying, it might be gossip, it might be deception, it might be being divisive, it might be any number of things. You might have some deep, dark, secret, hidden sins that are destroying you from the inside out. But what he's saying is, make sure you get these things out of your mind. So we know these things are wrong, but it doesn't always change for us, does it? Well, here's what I believe, and here's where I want to spend the most of our time this morning, is I believe there's got to be a mindset shift for us if we're ever going to get victorious over sin in our life. There has to be a mindset shift. And if you look there in this passage in verse 45, if you would, if we could turn back to that, I want you to look at that with me really quickly. Verse 45 says, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. Here's where I think is the basis, I think it's the fulcrum point of changing our mindset, is what we understand right now. Everybody, everybody with me? Everybody awake? What we're doing right now is not life. It's really not life. I'm, okay, let's think about it two different ways. People who are outside of Christ, if, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior yet, it's absolutely not life. But even for Christians, even for people who have surrendered their life to Jesus, what we're doing right now is not truly the full essence of life. Yes, we are living our resurrected life from the moment that we're buried with Christ in baptism and raised up to walk in a new life. Our spirit is made new, but this body, everything else, is still fighting in this dead, dying world. And he says, it would be better for you to enter life. We're still waiting for the real life. And we need to stop living like this stuff is life. And living like what happens in the next 10, 20, 30 years is the be-all, end-all, change-all to our world. It's what happens for eternity that makes a difference. It's what happens in eternity and preparing other people and ourselves for eternity that makes the difference. And so we've got to change our mindset if we are ever going to get victorious over sin. And so I want to share this idea with you. If we're going to get serious about sin, we have to learn to recognize life from death. Acceptance by this world is not life. Making more money and having nicer, more comfortable and better things is not life. Having the perfect spouse or children or friend set is not life. Those things are okay, they're not bad, but life is who we are in Jesus, if we are in Jesus. And that's what we need to prepare for. There's a saying or a quote from the movie Braveheart that was attributed to William Wallace. He said, every man dies, but not every man really lives. And there are a lot of people that breathe in and out, including people who are Christians who breathe in and out, but they never truly live and prepare for this life that is to come, and they never live their resurrected life. And so here's how I believe we can get serious about life in Jesus. Y'all with me? Here's how we get serious about our, the sin in our life and get rid of it. The first thing is this, accept responsibility. Accept responsibility. It's what we are called to do. James chapter 1 verse 14 says this. I'm, I'm going to read this one for you. Listen closely. James 1 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It says each person is what? Tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. If we're being honest, what do most of us probably say when we sin? I got tripped up. 
I got confused. I got, I just didn't see it coming. So-and-so was going, can we all say thank you, Jesus, for the fans squeaking stuff? That's been going on for like weeks, and we we're like trying to get it fixed, but no, no bueno yet. But thank you, Jesus. Thank y'all. Jesus and y'all. Thank you. But here's what I'm saying. He said, I completely lost my train of thought because I was so happy about that stupid fan squeaking stuff. Um, oh, accept responsibility. It's us who commit our sin. Now, yes, sometimes we can get sort of caught up. We don't necessarily always see it coming, but we choose to sin. And I'm telling you, if we could just get that around our, in our brains, accept responsibility for your sin, you'll be 10 times better off right to begin with. As long as you play the victim role, you will really struggle, and you will never defeat the sin that is eating you alive and killing you from the inside out. You have to accept responsibility. You have to accept responsibility. When it comes to your sin, you're not the victim. The second thing is this. Admit the truth about sin. James chapter 1. Sorry. James chapter 1, verse 15. If you would, this will be on the screen. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's what we have to understand from that. Sin takes time. As I said a moment ago, very seldom do we get completely caught off guard. It's not like our sin is a, is a mountain lion who we're just walking through Lowe's Foods, doo -doo 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 -doo, and a mountain lion pounces off the top of the shelf. Doesn't happen very much, does it? You know, that, but our sin, we try to think that that's what our sin is. I was just minding my business, minding my business, and that sin, I mean, yeah, that sin just, ha, and put me in a sleeper hole. No. We know that sin takes time. It grows. It starts small. The temptation starts small, and we can turn away from that temptation, or we can allow that temptation to simmer and, and saute a little bit, right? And we like to do that because, like, mm, that's kind of enticing. And we let it grow. We let it grow until finally it is a monster in the corner of our life, and it will then turn and devour us. And we've got to admit that truth that it is sin grows. It takes time. And that we also need to admit this truth. There are ways out, and we must choose to take them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Uh, I want to read this one for you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, mankind. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But most of the time, when we are tempted by sin, we go like this. We're like, I wish I had a way out, but I guess I just gotta. I guess I just gotta. Daggone, I'm so heartbroken. Oh, let me read my script. I am brokenhearted about my sin. I wish I had a way out. Y'all think I'm silly, but it's the truth. It's true. There is a way out. We just choose not to look for it many times. And so we've got to admit these truths about sin. We accept responsibility. We admit the truth about sin. Sin, here, here's something. I, if you don't get anything else out of it, and who knows, you might not. But maybe you can get this today. Sin is not so much a line we cross, but a direction we're heading. I don't know if you caught that, but that's something right there. I, I, don't, I doubt I, that originated with me. I'm not trying to say, well, look at me. I said something really good. But what I said was truth. 
Sin is not so much a line we cross, but a direction we're heading. And the way we treat sin a lot of times is a line. I don't know if you can see it, but there is a tape line up here on this stage. And most of the time in our life, we think, all right, well, I'm going to get as close as I can to this line. And, you know, am I looking? Whoop. Oh, I'm back. I'm back, church. Thank you, Jesus. You know? And we try to get, we're going to get close to that line. We're going to step across the line. But that's not really what sin is. Sin is a direction. You're either heading towards God or you're heading towards sin. And the more that you head towards sin and away from God, the more likely you are to do what? Step over that line. And we are heading in the wrong direction. And that's why repentance, it's a beautiful thing. It's a truth, but it's also a beautiful word picture about turning around, changing our mind that leads to a change in action. Stop heading in the direction of sin where you know that temptation is and head your heart and your mind towards God. If you know there's a particular place that is tempting for you to sin and fall into whatever your sin is, don't go there by yourself. Avoid it. If you know that there is a headspace in your brain that leads you down a certain path of sin, get, try to avoid that. Talk to somebody about it. Let the light shine in so that you can break those, those falsehoods away and follow the truth of God's word. Y'all got to listen quicker. All right, speed it up. Speed it up. Come on. Hey, come on. Whew, wow. Give me something. Just something. Snicker. <laughs> Anything. Whew, man. I don't know. We'll see. Y'all with me? Thank you. Okay. All right. Admit the truth about sin. Sin is not a line we cross, but a direction that we're heading. Abide in God's word is the next truth. Abide in God's word. If you're going to defeat sin, you've got to do it. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We need to store God's word in our heart so that we could avoid sin more regularly. Now, one of the things I want to point out is this sermon is just full of Scripture. It is full of Scripture because that's the biggest key that we have to freedom, yet we use, usually reject it. We forget it. We avoid it. We say, oh yeah, I, I know the Bible. I, I've got a Bible. I've got a Bible app. It's got 37 billion translations right on my phone, but you know, I don't have time to read it. You know, I just need something else that's going to help me. I need, you know, need this or that. But we need God's word hidden in our heart because every day we are lied to and we tell lies. And when we have God's word in our heart, in our life, then we really have the truth to blend and blast out those lies that are in our life. We have to fill our mind and our heart with God's word. Psalm 119 verse 9, back up a couple of verses, says this. How can a young man or woman keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. If you want to keep your way pure in life, you have to guard your life through the word of God. And a lot of people are sitting there, and they're like, yeah, but we might not go pick up the scripture. Why? It's life. It is life. We need to get into God's Word. God's Word has to be in and throughout our life if we're going to defeat sin. Here's the next thing. Absolutely say no. Accept responsibility. Admit the truth about sin. Abide in God's Word and absolutely say no. James chapter 4 verse 7 says this. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And as we talked about earlier, we sort of flirt with our sin. We flirt with our temptation. And we say, well, I'm not going to say no right now. I will say no later when it starts to get really, really serious about my sin. 
But what we have to do is we need to say, I need to say, is mo- the moment the temptation comes, I need to say, no. I need to say, no, absolutely, and get myself out of the situation. We have to avoid it at all costs. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10 says this, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, in refer- reference to Satan tempting him that, uh, there in the desert. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus didn't say, well, let me think about it a little bit. Let me get back to you. Uh, let me step over here for a second, and then I'm going to come back and see if I can handle this temptation again. What did he do? For all intents and purposes, what did he do? He said, no. He said, nope, I'm not doing it, and he quoted Scripture. There's a, falling back on Scripture, abiding God's Word. If you are in the midst of a temptation and you don't know God's Word, you're not going to have time to go back and find your Bible or open your Bible app and say, all right, let me find a relevant Scripture here to make sure I don't fall into this sin. Boom, too late. You've got to do your best to fill up your mind and your heart with God's Word so that you can give an answer when you say no. You think about it this way. Um, I, I love Krispy Kreme donuts. I believe God made them probably on the eighth day, most likely. He, he made them. I love Krispy Kreme donuts. And I, I can do a good job of driving down Nightdale Boulevard multiple times in a day or a week and never stop at Krispy Kreme donuts. I can do it. I love them, but I can do it. I can drive right by and never stop. But guess what happens when they're in my house? I mean, I'm just like, you know, Hoover. I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm fiending. They'll find me in the closet just pounding Krispy Kremes. <laughs> you know? I, I'm fiending. And I, it's what it is. If I bring it into my house, if I put myself in a position where it's right there around me, it's going to be a temptation. And we need to say no. The minute we're like, nope, not coming in my house, if that's my struggle, whatever your sin is, say no automatically. Here's the next thing. Acknowledge who sin hurts. The reason I say this is because We'll often admit that our sin, when we call it a sin, hurts us. We'll do that. But a lot of times we treat ourselves pretty poorly, don't we? We treat ourselves pretty poorly, and that's not enough to stop us because, well, I'm just hurting myself, right? And then we might say, well, I'm hurting other people. Maybe the person that I'm involved in the sin with or the people in my life that I care about that I'm sort of robbing from or cheating or whatever I'm doing, I can hurt them. Yeah, okay. But here is another level I want to take it. Genesis 39, verse 9. From Joseph. He is, he's got a powerful lesson here for us. Joseph is answering Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife was trying to get him to come to bed with her. And, you know, she waited until nobody else was around. And here's his answer. He said, um, he, meaning her husband, is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you. He's saying, I have power over everything in this house except you. You're his wife. That's all I don't have power over. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? That's not what it says. How can I do this great wicked sin and sin against God? He admitted that his sin hurt God Almighty. And I believe if we start to allow that to to form in our minds that every sin that we commit hurts God himself, then maybe that can help change our mindset. And when we look at scripture like in Hebrews where it says that when we continually sin that we're crucifying Jesus all over again on the cross. That we're putting him back on the cross. Acknowledge who your sin hurts. Yes, it hurts yourself. Yes, it hurts people. Whether you recognize all the people it hurts or not. But it hurts God as well. 
And then ache for God and his righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 66. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You and I need to hunger and ache for the righteousness of God. And that comes from being in God's word, from encouraging one another, from being around the church, from getting ourselves out of places where we're going to be dragged down. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Draw close to God, seek after him, chase after him with confidence. And then Romans 6, 11 and 12, listen to this. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. How does it say to consider ourselves? Dead to sin and alive in Jesus. Let us not let sin therefore reign in our mortal body to make us obey its passions. Don't let it be the boss. You're dead to it. You're alive in Christ. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Jesus. And then remember this overall. Tie it all together with this. There in that same chapter, Romans 6 verse 14. Sin has no power over you if you're in Christ. Now, that's my paraphrase of that verse. Sin has no power over you if you're in Christ. It only has the power that you give it. You know that? If you're in Christ, it only has the power that you give it. It cannot take you away. It cannot snatch you away. You don't have to continually stumble. I, I don't know who needs to hear that today, but you're not owned by your sin if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, it's time to get in Christ. But if you're in Christ, you don't have to continually stumble in your sin. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. We all need to hear it. We don't have to continually stumble. So how do you know if you're in Christ? Well, the beauty is this passage right here, if we look at context. If you want to understand the Bible, it's context, context, context. Keep backing out and look at the bigger picture and see, and you'll understand. A few verses early in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He says, if you don't want to be ruled by sin anymore, you know if you were baptized, you were buried with Christ in baptism and you were raised to a new life. Spiritually, God took your old sin away. He killed it and he, he buried it. It was nailed to the cross and you're raised up to walk in a new life. And you can look back and say, I died to sin. I'm alive in Jesus now. And you can walk out and say that sin doesn't have power. Look at verse 5. That's going to be on the screen. For if you have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. He wants us to know we don't have to live in sin anymore. Sin has no power. If you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, if you've been raised up to walk in a new life, it doesn't have to have power over you. This ought to get us excited, y'all. Because we walk around like we're owned by sin. We're in Christ, or at least we're supposed to be, and we walk around like we're owned by sin, and it has no power over us because of Jesus. And we should be triumphant from that because of that. Look at verse 9. 
uh, I'm going to read this one for you. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Everybody, for all time, every sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Y'all stick with me. We're almost done here. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not, do not present your members of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members of your body to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Man, that's a lot. And I don't know if you caught any of it, but I hope you did. He is saying, you in Christ are dead to sin and it does not have to have power over you because he defeated it once and for all. And I repeat it because we are stubborn, hard-headed people, myself included. I'm in the front of the line. And I forget that I have victory over sin because of Jesus' victory over death and sin forever. And I can walk in that victory, but I've just got to make sure I keep giving my parts of my body, my mind, my hands, my feet, over as, as a servant of righteousness to him. And that's an active thing. I've got to give myself to the service of Jesus Christ and his kingdom and stop giving them to service of the world and of sin and of death. And so if you really want to get serious about your sin, you have to trust God to take it away. Do you trust God enough to do what he says to get rid of your sin problem? Because the truth is, is he's the only one who can take your sin away. It's in Christ that that can happen. And so you see what the scripture says. If you go on living the truth of your new, forgiven, and free identity in Christ every day, dying to the old so that the sin won't come back and take control. Because it will try to come back and it will try to be boss. It will try to take control and steer you in the direction that it wants you to go. And you've got to say, no! I'm not owned by you anymore. You have no power over me because of Jesus. But it all starts with obeying God and his word. So take your sin seriously. Die to it before it kills you. But the question is, are you willing to trust God more than anybody or anything else? Are you willing to trust God more than anybody or anything else to take care of your sin to take care of your problem and to give you life I don't know where you are today in this journey if you've followed Jesus with your life have you been buried in baptism have your sins washed away to be raised up to walk in a new life or do you need to do that maybe today that's the day Maybe you've already done that, but you allow this sin to reign over you like it has some power. It's time to say, no more. I'm alive because Jesus and sin has no power over me. Who needs to make the change today? Trust God more than anybody or anything else. Let's stay in this worship. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement NC.